From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Welcome to the program. We're here. We may not be entirely ready to go, but we are here. And Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, has a new cell phone cover. I'm guessing it's because he has a new cell phone. I have the old cell phone and the old cell phone cover. No, you that's just, a new... That's, that's, that that's a, not. See how worn it is? But isn't it relatively new? Didn't you used to have one that had some orange or some pink on it also? No, I never did. Basically the same color? No, no, this is it. It's all worn down, see? All yeah, I see glitter, that, glitter. but yeah. I'm losing my mind. Well, I don't know. Tec- I, I, I have no opinion on that matter. Technology Corner has failed us once again on Open Line Friday. Th- as always. <laughs> <laughs> they might as well just have the engineers and the IS people lined outside the door <laughs> ready to come to the rescue, right? Well, welcome to Open Line Friday anyway. One piece of technology that is working is our phone line. So give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271-2985. And you can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, um, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host to see us every Friday, Colin Donovan, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. So, as I told you, and you thought I was joking, but I, did. I really wasn't. I did. Uh, we're going to talk about World Cup soccer on the uh, at the top of the program here, and uh, because <clears> hockey <throat> no longer fascinates you, I guess. Well, the Blues lost, so I'm done. Um, <laughs> being a native St. Louisan, when my team's out, I'm no longer interested. Well, what about uh, uh, that other team? <laughs> that's not where. That's not my home. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have a condo there, but that's not my home. So. <laughs> Although I, although you know, forced to pick, I would yeah, choose yeah. them to root for in this matchup for sure yes. uh, over the Colorado Avalanche. But anyway, enough of this hockey nonsense. Um, you know, it was announced recently that the uh, the World Cup is returning to the Americas in 2026. Uh, Canada, the United States, and Mexico uh, sites in those three countries will host the World Cup. And the reason I bring this up is not to talk soccer or mm-hmm. anything else with our with our uh, uh, our audience but um, one thing that the the global game of football as it is known um, around the world is associated with by some people mm-hmm. more than a few is a a symbol or an analogy for the one world government that is often spoke of when people are pondering apocalyptic times. 
Well, that's news to me. I always associated <laughs> with, well, I actually associated with being in Rome in 1991 when the World um, World Cup, or it may have been 89, whatever year it was, when the World Cup was, was held, was in Italy, was in Rome. And um, uh, of course, Germany and Italy are very often involved in in that battle. Perennial world powers, for P sure. Perennial powers. And uh, I was going to school in an Italian company and had Italian friends and and uh, lived in a house with a bunch of Germans. So uh, we naturally <laughs> had the TV, which we were allowed to sometimes watch, uh, on in the evenings to, to watch those games. But uh, And I do remember that, you know, as in all things, the church looks very positively on sports for the elements of you know, the teamwork that's required. We go all the way back to Scripture and St. Paul and using sports analogies to, you know, running the race and so on. Uh, and so sports is a very healthy thing. I'm not sure when it arises to the uh, rivalries that, that some individuals uh, uh, make, make use of it for. Uh, it's necessarily uh, a healthy thing, but... Uh, Hey, listen, it is a good thing, and it'll my, be good to have the World Cup here. Listen, my hometown didn't try to steal a hockey team from your hometown. It was the other way Ooh. around, my friend. Okay. Well, we didn't get it, so there there you go. <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, you know, but there are, and I think it's more of a reflection on yeah. our American arrogance more than anything deeply spiritual uh, that some people have associated the game of soccer with uh, the you know a one world government and an apocalyptic sort of uh, yeah. scenario. And whenever these things get bantied about, uh, I always come back. The the scripture that always rings in my ears is the Creator of the universe, incarnate, walking the face of the earth, told us no one knows the day or the hour. <laughs> I mean, we can get screwed in the ground pretty deep trying to figure these things out. Well, we, we can, you know, and uh, I had not actually heard of this permutation, and I sort of have my finger to the air for, for that kind of stuff and nonsense. But, yeah, if somebody has gone there, I think they're wasting their time for the reason that you give. Uh, and what the mystics have given over the generations are so is so general uh, that it seems clear that we are not at the end in any case. Um but uh, that someday that may be attempted, uh, you know. I think our our world is so fractured today that you could not form a one-world government, <laughs> to, to be honest. But that's aside from the question. Uh, religion doesn't attempt to to speak to when the Lord's will, his providence, and so on will, will bring that uh, about or allow that to happen. Yeah, and uh, it, it's... it's um What's the word I'm looking for here? It has it has escaped me. But it's it's dangerous business. We're certainly um, uh, closer than we were yesterday um, to yeah. the 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 end. Um, you know, I, I tend to maybe think that we're in the end times, but not the last days. Uh, maybe we've been in the end times since well, you Jesus don't have, resurrected. Yes, you don't have to tend to think that way. That's true. This is the; these are the last of times. This is quite clear from the scripture. You know, and there was a, we've there's a gentleman that's been on the network before, and I never, I always intend to write this down uh, when I hear mm -hmm. him speaking because he he wrote a book that seems uh, just to to my ear to be reasonable. And, and speaks to sort of my spirit 
in a way. But he talks about uh, essentially nine eras or nine things that have to happen based on all we know before he will return. So not knowing when he will right. return, but these yeah. things have to happen before he will return. And and based on what he has uh, extrapolated, um, you know, we're clearly still in, in the first phase, which is evangelizing all the world, huh? Yeah. We, we have two—there are two basic things. There's the, the general matters and then the specific case. The general is always the same, wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. Every era of history, certainly both since and be, before Christ, have had those. That's sort of the general thing. The turmoil that reflects, of course, the disorder in creation itself from the fall of the angels and the disorder in man from our own concupiscences, which drive wars and, and, and all of these other things. Then there are the specific signs, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church gives, beginning at paragraph 668, these specific signs. And the first one is that the gospel will be preached to the entire world. And John Paul II and both, and both him and Benedict uh, made clear in a number of statements that they made that we are not in the era. There are vast portions of the world which still need to be evangelized. And so that, that is the purpose in which we are about. The other thing is that in the wake of that complete evangelization and the conversion of the Gentiles, in a moral sense, not in an absolute sense, will be the conversion of the Jews. We are clearly not there either. Uh, and then things could begin to happen, and after that kind of unity that will exist will come the, you know, the, the one who will try to upset the apple, apple cart for the very last opportunity you will have in history or outside of history to do that. And so we will, then we will see the events unfold that directly lead to the second coming. And so we are a good deal, a good deal of distance. Um, most of the mystics who have spoken, and here I use only approved mystics, that the Church has said they are credible individuals because they have heroic virtue, and the Church says they have heroic virtue. They're believable. And that is, before all of that happens, we will have a similar time like that. But that will not be the end, the, the very end, the ultissimi. It will be at a rem some remote distance from, from the very end. But for probably all of us, that's not where our eyes should be anyway, because our particular judgment well, is going to come will, before that. We're, yeah, I'm guessing most people on the planet, if not all, <laughs> that will be true. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. From Rome to your home with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. You can watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's from EWTN's Vatican Bureau. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've got three open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Jeff in Superior, Wisconsin, listening on Real Presence Radio. Jeff, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, good afternoon, gentlemen, and God bless you. I um, My question is really two. My first uh, question is, when we uh, get the collection plate on uh, Sunday Mass, how much are we expected to contribute to the Church? And my second question is, if you want to have a Mass said for a person who is deceased, how much to do that, or how do we sure. get a Mass? Yeah. Um, okay, the the first thing is the collection. Uh, the Church uses the word tithing, but we've never, the Church has never set a particular amount of tithe. Uh, I know that for many non-Catholic Christians, you know, they go with the 10% to tithe, as in the Old Testament, 10% of the first fruits were offered to God. And so, uh, I, I think in one's overall charity, that's certainly a number to aspire to in your gift giving, but uh, it, it's not obliged in any formal way. If you look in the moral theology manuals, the number that is usually given, there's never been a dollar number, but that one has to satisfy one's obligations first. So if we have debts we have to pay, we have injustice, we have to satisfy those debts. And then if in addition to, if after all of that is done from our superfluous wealth, we give a generous gift, that is sufficient. And I think for most people, uh, um, you know, that may be how they're, how they're looking at it anyway. But the point would be that there is no number. There's, there's not a number of $10, $20, $50, $100. There is no, no number. But you have to figure out what it is that you can afford. And then I think look at it from the point of view of generosity to the Lord and to those whom the church is going to serve, which will be you and your neighbors, your parishioners, but also the poor and, and many others. So uh, th- that answers that, that question. Uh, tithing as such is used as a way of getting a commitment. And I think that's so easy today with Internet giving and, and you know, regular giving and so on to, to make some uh, contribution on a regular basis. Um, some older manuals would say that two and a half percent of one's income satisfies that. But again, that's always as a matter of, you know, some kind of guess what is reasonable for people with the kinds of expenses and, and, and life that, uh, most of us live. So I think there's no hard and fast number. Likewise with the stipend, there's no hard and fast number. I think if you offer the priest, you know, $10, he would see, I mean, it's not like he's going to, you know, extort $50 out of you or something like that. You can ask around, what, you know, what is common in the parish? What do people normally give Father for a, a stipend in Mass? Well, and, and generally, uh, parish secretaries will not be bashful about telling you exactly what that number is. That That's a good point. And the numbers that I have almost exclusively heard always is either $5 or $10. That's yeah, what it's usually ne- is not. It's usually not a heavy, big number like that. And the idea is the Church is not fostering the collection of money, but the souls... And that there should be, like when you do, you know, you do a penance, you go out and do something, you manifest your goodwill. Here you are, uh, you are doing, you're doing that as well. And in a way, it also limits the number of people who would make demands on the priest because he can only say a mass 
once a day, sometimes two or three times on Sunday, according to the particular norms of the canon law or what the bishop allows. So there is a limit to the number of masses that he can say, and he can take a stipend for each of those, but he can't take multiple stipends and he can't, you know, there are rules governing all of that. So that, that's a very reasonable amount, and I think that would be fairly common uh, across the country. Yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll just tell you uh, two quick little stories, Jeff, when it comes to, to giving and determining what, uh, you know, the, the, the best amount to give is. You know, my advice to you would be to go before the Blessed Sacrament and, and ask our Lord, and I promise you, in the silence of your heart, he'll tell you what it ought to be. Uh, back in the late 90s, my late wife Susie and I had a, a regimen of giving that we were uh, uh, undertaking. I was feeling convicted to up the ante on that a little bit. And she was not sharing that feeling with me, and this is this is during the this is during and and, and shortly after the market correction mm-hmm. of the late '90s that that yeah. had the economy in a bit of a of, a, of an uproar, and um, uh, so you know, being the servant leader of the household, I was not going to drag her; I was going to lead her. So we stayed where we were, and she was in a hotel room on a business trip. And was flipping through the channels on the TV and came across some evangelical minister that was on TV. uh, And he said something while she was watching that convicted her that we should do what I had proposed that we do. So she called me instantly and said, I think we should start doing that. So we started doing that. The next week, the next week, and you know, you can call it coincidental. But she had not seen a bonus in several years because of the condition of the economy, and her bonuses were based on sales and things of of that nature. And completely out of the blue, totally unsuspecting to us, came the first bonus in three or four years, uh, to which we, quite frankly, attribute, you know, I mean, our Lord does not pay back dollar for dollar for crying out loud, but we took it as a confirmation that we were moving in the right direction. Mm And when I was part of a charismatic evangelical campus ministry myself when I was in college, uh, a starving college student, and before school had started back uh, in the first part of the previous year, you you remember back in the day, I don't know if they had them in Saskatoon or not, but the banks would offer these things called Christmas Club accounts. Yes. Where you'd put a little bit of money in, and then at the end they would write you a check. That's not quite that far back in my life history, but (laughs) I get your point. Yeah, and uh, and it was... uh, yeah, you know, you'd put you know put away right. a little bit here and there, and then in, at the, at the you know so you didn't go after, broke at Christmas yeah, time so trying to get gifts. Uh, yeah, so after November they would give the money back to you mm-hmm. with a tiny bit of interest to it, so you could go out yeah. and do some Christmas shopping. And so I had, and you, I think you had to put twenty five dollars in to get it started. And I think that's the last time I ever put any money, and it was back in that January. So here we are in the late fall, and we are at a meeting that we had with this evangelical group and before they took an offering we would always pray and ask the Lord what we thought we should give so um, we were praying and I really felt like the Lord was saying to give $25 and I'm saying to myself in my heart of hearts Lord I don't have $25 I can't do that and I thought this prompting came to me saying well write a check and I thought to myself okay that's about $24.75 more than I have in my checking (laughs) account and that would be not be prudent, so I'm not writing a check either, so I didn't do anything, right? Then that weekend, after that meeting, I went home to my parents' house, and what is sitting in the pile of mail for me but a $25 check from that Christmas Club account that I had 
uh, started and forgotten about all the way back in January. So the Lord cannot be outdone in, in outdone in generosity. And, yeah, and that's a witness that many people have given. Yeah. Given. You know. yeah. But when the church looks at it, it's not looking at it from, uh, from the point of view of you know generosity, you know, which would be to say you must become a priest, you must become a religious. That's the most generous thing you can do. But rather, the person responds genuinely to the invitation of the of their own heart and of their own reason, and that in this way they are trying to satisfy what God wants. And so there is, in a way, the minimum which is what the moral law, what is that obligation, that uh, sixth precept to support the church? Uh, there is that minimum, and then there is the generous response, which the Lord is not outdone, pressed down and overflowing, as the Scripture tells us. But above all else, as you said earlier, take care of your financial responsibilities. Right, uh, yeah. 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 Otherwise, you won't be able to give to anybody. That's right. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Jerry in the great state of Connecticut listening on AveMariaRadio.net. Jerry, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, as, as I've said, I'm from Connecticut, and at a recent gathering of Christian ladies, Catholic ladies, we were studying Father Apostoli's book on Fatima, mm-hmm. and a question came up, is uh, the apparition at Fatima part of our tradition, of Catholic tradition, or is it part of the Magisterium? Mm-hmm. No, uh, what constitutes the divine revelation is sa- sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Sacred tradition are those things which come down, sometimes you hear it called apostolic tradition. You know, in other words, it's quite clear the Gospel of John ends with Jesus said many more things than could ever be written down. Uh, we know that St. Paul, he went out, he said not only to follow his words that in, he gave in writing, but also what he had handed on. The word there in Latin is to traderate, to hand on something. Our word tradition comes from what is handed on. So the apostles handed on much more than in sacred scripture. A document which was only compiled and authenticated as, as divine revelation till hundreds of years after, although it was recognized, obviously, these are from the apostles and so on, but uh, the exact character or canon as it is uh, today was not known. That's sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Now, the, as time goes on and the church in her contemplation of all of that, she draws conclusions from that, and that we the magisterium has defined certain things about Christ, about Our Lady, about the Church, about sacraments, and many other things. Outside of all of that is the gifts, the generous gifts that God gives to every generation through saints uh, and even non-saint mystics through apparitions such as Fatima and Lourdes and Guadalupe in Mexico, where the Church authenticates that these are credible, they're believable, and the church's investigation is, the, is thorough. It's a theological judgment by those who not only have the knowledge to do that thorough judgment and investigation of judgment, but then also have the charism left with the church to make this judgment so that the faithful are never misled. So that's what we can say about the Fatima and other apparitions and the mystics that the church has approved and that is, we can't be misled by following them. 
They're credible. The church has authenticated that credibility. They are not part of the deposit of the faith. But as the Catechism says in paragraph 67, and that would be worth your reading, 66 regarding public revelation, divine revelation, 67 regarding private revelation, the Lord gives us to help us in certain times to see a direction of action and prayer and so on. And that's what Fatima did, gave us a direction of how to respond to our times, the 20th century and into the 21st, in a very active way to fight spiritually the battles that needed fought. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If everybody in our listening audience should, could please say a brief prayer for Colin's browser. Uh, Colin is, is clutching clutching tightly in his hands his internet explorer browser in spite of its obsolescence and it's you do what you have hard. to do it's hard yes, Colin, it's hard. I know. you do what you have to do <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number 833-288-3986 um, our thanks to kmmk fm 88.7 radio in cedar rapids iowa partnering with EWTN now for four years this week. We're very blessed to work with Tony and Sue May, uh, now celebrating four years of great Catholic radio with EWTN and KMMK Radio in Cedar Rapids. Uh, Still a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. Susan is in Melbourne, Florida, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Susan, you are on with Colin Donovan. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to talk with both of you. Uh, there was a news item on at, at the top of two, the 2 o'clock Eastern Time hour mm-hmm. that talked about a Catholic school being reprimanded, I believe, by the diocese for uh, having a gay, gay pride flag and being told to get it down now. And... Uh, They said they weren't going to do it, and they were going to appeal. What I would like to know is, are they appealing to a higher Catholic authority, or are they appealing to a government entity? Yeah, um, I'm I'm not sure which—that story I heard a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'm not sure if this is a new occasion of it. There was another story recently where the bishop in Worcester, Mass., admonished a local school— uh, and said they had to remove um, uh, the, the Catholic, and they couldn't fundraise under that guise in their his diocese and other things, and it had to do with their content. And I'm not sure what it was, whether it was related to gay ideology or some element of it. Uh, I do know that in that particular case, there is a Catholic university in that town uh, that where they have a theologian who is a big promoter of what they now call uh, queer theology. So there are obviously some issues in the church. With regard to the flag, the bishop is autonomous in that respect in his diocese to anybody but the pope. The pope works through the dicasteries in Rome, in this case probably the dicastery for bishops, Uh, and so if there is any appeal uh, uh, illegal, uh, it depends I guess on the character of of the institution. If this is a diocesan school, then it's an absolute right. 
Uh, if it's a private Catholic school, then he, he probably will have difficulty enforcing that. Uh, but uh, I suppose he could. And if they wanted to appeal in either case, uh, the, the case would be appealed to Rome. I think they would lose in Rome because the gay flag represents not... That is where they're appealing, by the way. Yeah. The, gay, the, the pride flag does not represent uh, uh, moral justice for gay people, for homosexuals and lesbians and transgenders and others, uh, unless that means that the church recognizes the practices, you know, the sexual practices with, uh, of such individuals. If it means recognizing their dignity, the church already does. So I think the, the pride flag will get rejected. Uh, I, I mean, if you think about the lunacy of that title, um, is there a, let's see, should we be running up the heterosexual flag um, or, you know, the white European heterosexual flag? That would bring a lot of hate on anybody doing that. Uh, so it seems like for a Christian institution to be proud of behavior which the church labels as disordered is not in keeping with Catholic teaching. Uh, that they respect individuals who are troubled by that, or even, even if they're not troubled because they're human beings and have dignity before God, before Christ, and before the church, that's another matter. We should do that for everybody, whoever they are. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly what they think they're litigating, uh, but I guess they're welcome to try. And this, is a, this particular school in the Worcester case is run by a religious order. And, if that's and, the if that's and, the same school, then yeah, yes, but, it, that's, it, but that does not take them out from under the jurisdiction of the local ordinary. <laughs> no, absolutely not, because any a religious order, and I'm not sure that it's run by the the, the principal, I believe, or at least the chaplain is a Jesuit. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't believe it's run by the Society of Jesus. I'm sure it's civilly constituted and has all of the, the you know the accoutrements of that. But none, nonetheless, you have to think of, well, what is the responsibility of claiming to be a Catholic institution if people are sending your kids there in order to get a Catholic institution and when instead they're getting a current culture in America institution? Education. Uh, education, yeah. So uh, I, I'd be surprised if they, if they would win the right to fly the pride flag. Yeah. Thanks, Susan. We appreciate the phone call. 833 288 EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Eric is in Indianapolis, Indiana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Eric, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. Earlier today, I'd seen a, I'd seen a, thank you, I'd seen a Catholic parish post uh, the Apostles' Creed on their uh, on their social media page, and in doing so, they referenced it as a profession of faith or Catholic belief. And of course, uh, in the Apostles' Creed, it says we also believe in one holy Christian Church. So I asked the question, and then, you know, in regards to the four marks of the churches, you know, that we mm-hmm. cite every Sunday in the Nicene Creed that says uh, One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, and I was just uh, looking for some clarification, sure. maybe some historical yeah. context. Now, you so, said thank a, you. a Catholic institution posted this? Yeah, a Catholic Church. A Catholic okay, Church well, is, uh, social media. Yeah, they did not post the Apostles' Creed then. They, opposed, they took 
the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, and they doctored it to agree with their political opinions, ecclesiastical Cat- politics. Catholicum is not Christian. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, it doesn't say one holy Christian church. It says one holy Catholic church. Even the Lutherans, I went to the wedding of friends in a Lutheran church, Evangelical Lutheran church. They say the Apostles' Creed more or less with, you know, sort of the English language problem we have with the Brits. Uh, more or less, as we say, they say Catholic, but they don't read it as Catholic in the way we do, but yet they say it, as do the Anglicans. So they interpret it differently. This, you know, it's stupid to change the text because it's, you know, an emperor has no clothes situation. It's like telling the world that we're not really honest here. We have to distort the language in order to, you know, to profess what our real belief is. That we're, you know, it's really the church of all Christians. It's not the church founded by Christ. Does that help, Eric? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. You're Thank welcome. you. We appreciate the phone call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Regina is in Washington, D.C., listening on Guadalupe Radio. Regina, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thanks. Yes, um, since... Divination is an abomination, and that was stated as you know far back as the Old Testament, I think, in Deuteronomy. So why was it okay for the apostles to use a form of it uh, to uh, choose a replacement for Judas? Okay, um, they drew they drew the drawing of lots. This has practice actually. There was a practice in Judaism itself. And although the te- the condemnation of divination came through the Jews, they nonetheless did, and they and they, they the the priesthood uh, used that for some decision make for decision making. So the apostles were following in that tradition. Divination is uh, strictly speaking is like the case of uh, the witch of Endor divining Samuel up so he could answer Saul's questions. Samuel having departed. You know, we would think of what the modern psychic does in order to get information out from the other world, from the dead, and so on. Now, the church does not favor this practice because, unlike the apostles, who acting as a body uh, were commissioned by Christ, the individual is much more likely to be duped uh, and to uh, accredit to God something which is not from God. And that's the basic problem of divination. Uh, it's not the practice per se. Um, you know, it's it's the fact that in the practice you're calling on the spirit to lead you to choose, uh, make a decision, and if you don't know what the spirit is, it could be the devil, uh, and the presumption would be that uh, for this reason the lady should not do this, or even the church today would not do this. But in the same way. What the apostles did were in a uh, falling in a Jewish tradition, and I think I don't think you hear of that outside of the Scripture. I can't be uh, thoroughly certain of that with regard to the historical sources, but I don't think that's a practice that continued beyond the use which we see uh, in uh, the Acts of the Apostles. But th- that's the distinction: what their purpose was and who they were distinguished it from. Uh, the general run-of-the-mill use that people would put to it to get information from the dead 
uh, as as uh, Saul tried to do uh, get from Samuel. Thanks, Regina. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call, and we've got plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. We got an email from Thomas in Tennessee, and he said, I've read from reputable Catholic exorcists that Satan and the demons cannot read our thoughts. As demons are fallen angels and they cannot read our minds, are the good angels able to read our thoughts? I sure hope so, as most of my St. Michael the Archangel prayers I've ever said were silent. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, silent prayer is valuable. Um, and, you know, the probably the most common explanation is that uh, in God, the angels receive that information. You're directing your thoughts. It's an activity of your own intellect to do that. Uh, the angels are intellectual beings. They, they only communicate in that way, intellect to intellect. Uh, so they are capable of that kind of communication. And in mysticism, of course, the, it's the angels who mediate the mystical, uh, the mystical words and so on that a person who gives a private revelation that church approves will have received that through the, minute, through the activity of the angels, as St. Thomas and John of the Cross uh, both teach. Uh, so that's possible because God is the medium there. The devil doesn't have that doorway, doesn't have that possibility. So no, he cannot read your thoughts. What the devil can do is, and what the bad guys can do, uh, is they are observing human beings all the time. And if your wife can read your body language, you know, the demons can read your body language. So they don't necessarily need to read our thoughts to know what is going on in our mind and to try to interfere with God's permission. You know, so you think of, you know, you think of... Sort of think, educated speculation. Educated, very highly educated. You know, a human psychologist or psychiatrist might be able to do the same thing. You see books on reading body languages, body language, you know, that you can interpret. And people, I would imagine, in the, in the CIA probably study that kind of thing to be able to, you know, discern what the other, the opposition is, is, is up to. So um, they don't need to read our thoughts, uh, but they can probably get pretty close because they have a long history of observing us and knows know what follows uh, from uh, you know from particular situations and how to lead us down in the wrong paths when the option of choosing the good or the evil is laid is before us in some situations. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight. 3986. That's the number Marianne used. She's a first-time caller in Kansas City, Kansas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Marianne, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, yes. Um, I was relating to the gentleman who, I guess, went online and the Apostles' Creed, they said Christian, mm -hmm. and of course we say Catholic. Uh, but Catholic is spelled with a small C. Doesn't it have a different meaning than the, our church, the Catholic Church? No, the only reason it's spelled that way because it's talking about the marks or characteristics of the Church. The Church is one as Christ is one in His unity. We think of the unity of God and man in Christ. 
the unity of the church. We think of the unity of the bride and the bridegroom. That's in Scripture. The unity of the church with Christ. And then there's the unity of the church as manifested in certain marks. And that is, for instance, it's Catholicity. Well, holiness. Its holiness comes from Christ. And the church has the means of conveying holiness through the seven sacraments. Uh, Catholic, the third one. The Catholic, it's universal. It's not the church for the Jews. It's not Judaism meant for the Jewish people in their natural relationship of uh, ethnic relationship and of birth. It's not the church for Russia, Canada, the United States, Mexico, or wherever. It's the church, the universal church intended by Christ in his unity with his church and in the holiness of his church and the holiness of the sacraments and the means that they give to give to everybody. It's for everybody. And the last one is apostolic. This is the one that guarantees all of the former one, that we can go and we can see constituted in the hierarchy of the church, the successors of Peter in the Pope, the successors of the bishops uh, of the other apostles in the other, uh, in the other bishops, and in the unity of the college, and when the origins of the whole thing back from the first century from Christ and the original apostles, we see that this one holy and Catholic uh, thing created by Christ is founded is wherever there are the apostles. And what do the apostles do? They teach the unity of the church. They teach the holiness of the church. They teach the Catholic universality of the church. And so if you're in a community that, as, as I noted, uh, some churches, they use this instead, uh, it, it's hard to say uh, what justification we have. Now, some churches have come, labored to get justifications because they know this is true. It comes out of the fathers of the church. It comes out of the early creeds when there was only one united communion of all the churches in the world. You see this all in the writing. You see it in throughout the first millennium until the, the great split between the Orthodox and the Catholic Church. You see that there is a unity of meaning and understanding over what the creed means, and it means exactly as I said. But then they start part, you start parsing it, and you start thinking, well, I'm not going to agree on this, so I'm going to go my own way in that communion. Or you do like the Anglicans tried to do, and that is to justify that really they are Catholic, and there are three Catholic churches in the world. There is the Orthodox churches in the East, there is the Roman church in Europe, and then there is the Anglican church. We all have this same one holy Catholic and Anglican one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but this is the Anglican branch, and it was the branch theory is literally what it was called. But if it's not in communion, it's not one, and that's broken right there. And when you destroy the meaning of the priesthood, it ceases to be apostolic. And when it ceases to be apostolic, it ceases to be able to confer, confer holiness because it doesn't have the true sacraments. And now, it, of course, it, long, it left Catholicity because it's confined to an island, the island most of my ancestors came from. But nonetheless, you destroy that, and you can use the expression, but it doesn't mean what it meant in the beginning to the first millennium of Christians. So, uh, no, it doesn't say one holy Christian church, nor does it mean that other churches are Catholic who are not part of the one holy and apostolic communion of the Catholic Roman Church. Uh, and... And that's, that's simply pick up any book 
that gives the history of the first millennium or the fathers of the church, and all of this can be verified. And this is why people like John Henry Cardinal Newman returned to the Catholic Church, even though he set out to prove the very question you asked, that he was as Catholic as an Anglican priest uh, as the, the, Roman, the Roman priests were. And he disproved his point, and he became a Catholic, a cardinal, and a saint. How's that, Marianne? Okay, makes a lot of sense. Thank okay. You. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Uh, be sure to join us for Father Mitch Paqua's uh, Bible Study, Scripture, and Tradition, Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, Father Mitch takes us to Capernaum to discuss the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and how Jesus engages the kingdom of darkness in direct combat by healing and exercising many people. That's Scripture and Tradition with Father Mitch Paqua, Sunday afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. John writes in, Can you explain the relation of emotions to virtues? How do we progress in developing virtuous emotions? Well, that's a good question, because uh, the writings of John Paul II... Anybody who wants to read about this should read Love and Responsibility because uh, he wrote it for the uh, high school and college students that he, as a priest, were teaching about this very matter. And I think you could conceive it this way, that the emotions are the energy that go into, the ver- that go into human action, into moral action. In other words, we're human, we're not angels, so we have emotions. We're not animals because we have reason. And so the purpose of the emotions is for us as creatures with reason is to direct them in the proper, because they're a beautiful thing that we've channeled in the way that God desires, that's the virtue, and guided by reason to the end of that emotion, what its purpose is. You know, love of neighbor, love of spouse, love of children, love of God, love of country, love of, you know, appropriate things, uh, even if it's uh, a hamburger, you know, to eat one and not ten or something like that, a city. Uh, I always think of the hot dog co- eating contest you know, where you on basically gorge on the 4th of July, the fourth of July we're yep. coming up, not uh, gorging yourself for just a game. I mean, this is moral stupidity, really. Um, but it's the, uh, the emotions are the human energy, which only we have, the angels don't have, that our Lord had, obviously, because he had human body. But they to be, need to be guided, and that's why we are given our reason. Our reason helps us channel those things which tend to pull us in directions we ought not to go and to channel them towards virtue. And so John Paul II wrote a lot about that as a priest, as a bishop, as a cardinal, and as a pope about this relationship of the virtues and the, and, and the reason. Because he uses this word, which not the only philosopher or theologian to use it, integration. In the original sin and in the fall, the unity of the human person was damaged, and we tend sometimes to disintegration, where our will, our emotions, our reason, uh, and intellect are going their own ways are in opposition to each other. Grace helps heal that wound by helping us integrate. Now, the virtues as natural virtues also do this, but they can't go all the way because without grace we can't be saved. 
And so natural virtues, as the, the, the Stoics and other ancient philosophers, as the Romans who were big fans of the Stoics, tried to be you know, virtuous and all of that, that's not going to get you saved. That doesn't get you to Christ and to God. But it does help you channel your emotions. And so they sought to do that on a natural level. Grace helps to do it perfectly and to align us with the gospel demands of Christ. And so it's very important to be working on that, on the power of the will. This is where I think going to confession and confessing our weaknesses at this governing of ourselves that we can do and, uh, and when we're not doing it, this is a way to grow ever more because we need grace. We can sort of bootstrap it, but only get so far with natural virtue. We really need grace. We need the sacraments to do it. And that's one of the reasons uh, Christ gave us the sacraments is to get us down this road of channeling the virtues towards virtue rather than let them channel us towards the naturally attractive things which lead to vice. Just a couple minutes left here, Colin. Francis wants to know, he had a question, when the Bible says to honor your father and mother, but one of them told you to do something that is against the Bible in our faith, what should we do? Honor God before man, and it's the example that you can do that, uh, is if your parent or anybody tells you to do something wrong, morally wrong, you don't do it, because the law of God precedes the... The law of God and the respect we owe our parents is predicated and depends upon parents asking us to do the right things. And when they do not... Now, that's not like the seven-year-old who's being told, you know, you can't have this piece. Well, my conscience tells me I can. That doesn't work. But as you get older and get more maturity, you're expected to be able to see what is the right thing and to do it. And the time may come where you have to say, you know, I'm not going to lie to the tax man, Dad, about uh, how you spend your money and, and what I've heard you say you cover, you know, <laughs> how you write that on your 1040. No, we can't do that. We have to be honest and, and integral in our own lives, even when it means seemingly, but not actually dishonoring our parents. Have a great Father's Day, Colin. And you as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I want to encourage all of you to have great Father's Day, those of you who are fathers, whether it be natural fathers or spiritual fathers. And remember those priests and bishops and that are in your life. And, uh, you know, help remember to wish them a, a happy Father's Day. Uh, this Sunday here in the United States as well. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matthew Bensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of Open Line. Back at it Monday with Father John Trujillo. Until then, God bless.